We'll pick up the story, verse 30, get the conclusion of Lot's story here, chapter 19, verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. And then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the man of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when, he, when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight also, and then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. For he's the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So Lot was in, as we left off last week, he was in Zoar. He leaves Zoar. Why is that? Well, I think he sees the destruction of Sodom and he decides, I guess in not so many words, would better to live in a cave with purity than in a city with a bunch of filth. And so he leaves Zoar. Here he is. He, he's got his two daughters in a cave. The question that you ought to ask is, where's his sons at? Because we know Lot had sons. Well, uh, what happened to them? Well, they uh, perished with the rest of Sodom. Very sad picture. He wasn't able, remember last week, he even goes to his sons-in-laws and tries to persuade them of the coming judgment of God, and they think he's joking. Um, it's interesting. You, you, listen, you don't take your walk with God seriously. Don't be surprised if other people don't take you seriously when you talk about God. And so he's not been able to convince his sons that, that God is true, his word is true, and that judgment is coming. So he's lost his witness. He's lost his influence. He's lost his character. He's lost his wife. He's lost his son and everything really that he was pursuing. It's now gone up in smoke and he finds himself here in a cave with two daughters. I mean, if there's a verse that should be put over Lot's life, it'd be Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end leads to destruction. Lot is a man who succeeded, but he succeeded in the wrong areas. Now, the Bible is not afraid of failure. But the great fear of the Bible is that you would succeed in the wrong things. That you'd climb the ladder of success only to realize that you'd leaned it up against the wrong building. And I say that because I think there's some of you in here today that quite frankly, you yourself are succeeding in the wrong areas that you're gaining a position in the stuff of this world and nothing wrong with those things. But if that's what's driving your life today, if that's what you're using as a means of support and that you're, is really the focus of your life, then just be reminded of the same thing that Lot learns here at the end of his life, that all that stuff will be gone at some point. Well, the only thing that you're going to bring with you to God is the souls of the men and women that you've impacted with the gospel. Do you realize that today? And we don't want to get to that moment like Lot will eventually. And, you know, as Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where everything that we've done is going to be tested by fire. And Paul says there's some people are going to be saved, but they'll be saved as though through fire, that they're going to get in, but they're going to smell like smoke. And they're going to have nothing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to succeed in the wrong things. That's the picture that we see 
uh, in Lot. And what about his daughters? Um, they've been so corrupted by the sinfulness of the culture that they've existed in and, and so corrupted, even in fact by, the, by the, the life they've seen imitated before them in Lot, that you see here there's no leaning upon God. They, they want to pass on their family line and they want to have children, but you would expect them in this moment, what should they have done? Well, let's lean upon God. Let's pray. Let's ask God to provide. And yet there's no mention of God here, no praying. What are they going to do? They're going to simply fall upon what they've seen. They're going to imitate what they've seen around them. It's a good reminder to us as parents that the things of God are caught more than they're taught. Meaning our example is better than all of our little lessons. And Lot hasn't done a very good job of cultivating the things of God within his children and living that out in front of them. And so now they're going to fall back on what they've seen. It's kind of the principle of garbage in, garbage out. So here is Lot, dead wife, dead sons, a drunk daddy, incestuous daughters who produce the Amorites and the Moabites who will be the main enemies of God's people. That is Lot's legacy. Lot in the New Testament, he's never mentioned in a positive light. And make no mistake about it, I don't think Lot set out to tank his life. In other words, this is not the picture that I think Lot had in mind when he left Abraham and set out for this beautiful valley. You remember, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the great things. I'm sure that this is not where he thought he would find himself. But what is true is that, that we know that Jesus said, if your eye is clear, the whole body is clear. This man had bad eyes. In other words, he had bad values. He lifted up his eyes. What was driving his life was the stuff of this world and the accumulation of power and wealth. And if that's what's driving your life, don't be surprised if you end up in a very similar situation to Lot. Lot is intended to shake us up. He's intended to warn us that if you get off track a little bit, and this is what's interesting about God. In the evil things and the good things we do, oftentimes there's not immediate recompense, is there? Well, there's not immediate, if you do the wrong thing or make a bad decision, oftentimes it doesn't immediately happen that God strikes you down dead. And so what will happen is you make a lot of those bad decisions, you'll think, well, it's going all right. I think I'm doing okay. And then you turn around one day and you find yourself in the situation of Lot. See, see Lot is, uh, as I was reading this status, he's a picture of you know, the Christmas carol of Scrooge. Scrooge got to see a picture of where his life was heading before he died. And it shook him up, and he decided to change his ways. Some of you are getting a picture of your own life in the picture of Lot. And I'm telling you, if that is the passion of your life, the pursuit of stuff and wealth, and nothing wrong, again, there's nothing wrong with stuff and wealth and money, but if that is the driving passion of your life, just be forewarned today. One day it's all going up in smoke. And the question that you've got to ask yourself, have you invested in the things of eternity? Because one day that's all that's going to matter anyway. And the good news is there's always an opportunity to change. I know Pastor Kelly reminded you of that last week, but we call it repentance to change the direction of your life. Um, it reminded me, Alfred Nobel, uh, Alfred Nobel, um, we're all familiar with the Nobel Peace Prize, but Alfred Nobel took over his father's business, which was actually the selling of uh, torpedoes that was used on submarines. And then he developed a new technology called dynamite. 
and you're wondering, how in the world does a guy who invented dynamite become known for peace? Well, what happened was in 1888, um, his brother passed away, and they thought it was him, and they wrote an obituary for him. Imagine that, getting to read your obituary before you die. Well, guess what they said about him? They said, you know what this guy's known for? His legacy will be, he, will, he was the merchant of death. And he decided, I don't like that legacy. And so he took his life savings, about $8.5 million, and he devoted it to being distributed annually to those who excel in humanitarian causes. He changed his legacy. And I tell you today, if you are sensing your life's heading the wrong direction, today's the day to change. And God's a grace, a God of grace and a God of forgiveness. And so a lot, he's going this one direction. He's, he's going that direction. And then the counterpart to Lot is who? Is Abraham. This is the, Lot is there as a counterpoint. You got point and counterpoint. You got Abraham going in a different direction. But what we're going to find out in chapter 20 is just because Abraham is going in a different direction doesn't mean that he's not susceptible to sin, right? So what are we going to see in Abraham's life? Abraham is going to have what I call a sinful relapse. He's going to fall back into the same old, selfish, cowardly sins that he demonstrated all the way back in chapter 12. If you've read this, you know that you read chapter 12 and you read chapter 20, and they're almost identical. You remember in chapter 12, he he didn't trust God to provide his needs. He went down to Egypt. He passed his wife off as a sister. Why? Not out of her desire to protect her, but out of desire to protect himself. And God publicly embarrasses him. He gets rebuked by Pharaoh. You got this pagan guy lecturing him on morality and integrity. And God graciously takes Abraham by the hand, leads him back to the altar of forgiveness. Abraham pleads with God. He recommits his life to following God and in faithfulness. And you would think, surely he's now left it behind. Surely he's not going to deal with this again. Well, right here we see the return of an old sin. And can I just ask you this morning, before we even go any further, do any of you still have some sins in your life that haunt you? You every now and then find yourself back at the altar of God pleading with him for forgiveness over sins that really you should have left behind years ago. See, this passage is here to teach us and instruct us. Instruct us. There's so many people, I think, that, that they come to faith in Christ, they give their life to Christ, they got the salvation, and they repent of sins, and they think that now the Christian life is just going to be one big victory and I'm never going to deal with sin again. And then when they do deal with sin, which they're going to deal with sin, they all of a sudden start to think, am I really saved? And really it's on us to make sure that we're giving a better instruction on the biblical idea of salvation. But what we're learning here in the life of Abraham is that even the big boys fall. And just because you've been walking with God for 25 years in the school of faith doesn't mean that you're not susceptible to sin that you and I are going to battle sin in our life until God calls us home. So we get a good picture of what the walk of faith is in Abraham right here. Let's look at it together, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he sojourned in Gerar. So Abraham has moved as far away from Sodom as he possibly could. So he's... He's moved to the other end of the land. In verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And here we go again. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you're a dead man. Don't you love that? That's how fearful God is of kings. You're dead because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. How can you hold me accountable? He's saying, I, I, I can't be held accountable for something I didn't know. I'm innocent. And God says in verse 6, uh, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you've done this. And I've also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And by the way, this powerful picture of what God feels about adultery right here. You, sin, you, you touch her, you're sinning against me. Verse 7, now therefore restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you'll live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you've done this thing? And again, in Abraham's life, we see a pagan, a Philistine king lecturing Abraham about integrity and morality. Never a good place. Verse 11, and Abraham said, because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's actually my sister, and the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere you go, say of me, he's my brother. Verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it's your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you're cleared. So Abimelech here is making public restitution to verify Sarah's cleared. Verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You know, as I read this, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the question that kept running through my mind is how in the world could Abraham fall back into the sin that he committed 25 years earlier? I mean, this sounds so simple. You, you would think that the minute that Abraham came to that point when he's intro- introducing Sarah to Abimelech and he's like, Abimelech, here's my sister. I mean, she's my wife. You would have think he would have corrected himself immediately. He would have remembered the embarrassment and, and his commitment to God. This seems so rudimentary. And we've seen Abraham. He's grown so much in his faith. I mean, this is a great man of faith. How in the world could he fall prey to the exact same sin? And I think that is the whole point. That none of us are immune That you never as a Christian get to a place where you can say, well, boy, I passed that sin. I'll never deal with that again. That's a past deal. I'll never have to fight that old sin again. We see this in Scripture. Paul (laughs) wrote the majority of the New Testament. You remember Paul? He said uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, do, do not be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then let no unwholesome word proceed forth from your mouth except that which is good for the edification of the time. And, but you remember in Acts chapter 23 when he was on trial uh, before the high priest. In a moment of anger, what happened? 
He blew it. He erupted in anger and he said things that he shouldn't have said and he had to publicly ask for forgiveness in front of everybody. Paul blew it. You remember um, Moses when he's leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, this great man of God who had an intimate relationship with God. He's leading the people out of Egypt. And in Exodus 19, or Numbers 19, um, he's, he, the, the people of Israel, they, they're, they're upset. They're grumbling because they don't have water. And what did God say to Moses? He said, go, go to the rock. Take your rod. Go to the rock. Speak to the rock, and it'll bring forth water. And what does Moses do? He goes to the people of Israel and says, you bunch of ungrateful rebels, you want water? I'll show you some water. And he loses it. And God says, now you're going to have to stay here, Moses. See, the point is, even the big boys fail from time to time. Even the father of the faith, as we see here, and so can you. We all have sins that haunt us. And often we find ourselves back again at the altar of God, pleading him, pleading with him for forgiveness over sins that we should have left behind years ago. We all, listen to me, we all have sinful baggage that we bring with us into our walk with Christ, and we're going to struggle with those sins until the day we die. But the question we got to ask ourselves is, what, what, did, did Abraham do anything? Was there something that made him susceptible to the sin? Because we want to learn from Abraham. We don't want to fall prey to these repetitive sins. And uh, so we ask ourselves, what happened in Abraham's life? What, what, what caused this? And I think we get a glimpse into Abraham's heart and his response to Abimelech in verses 11 through 13. So look with me briefly, verse 11 And Abraham said, because I thought, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. What does he say right there? He said, I had no other choice. Had to do it. (laughs) What is is behind that? Well, we know what's behind that. What's behind that is a lie. I can tell you this morning that behind every sinful activity in your life and my life is a lie of Satan. It's been so since Genesis chapter 3. And what is Satan saying to Abraham in this moment? If you don't lie and cut this corner, then you're not going to live. And then there won't be anybody carrying on the promise. And he's bought into a lie of Satan. Not only is he bought into a lie of Satan, he lacks trust in God. Not only behind every sinful activity is a lie, but also is a lack of trust in God. Just like it was in Egypt. I can't trust God there. I can't trust God here. He's bought into the lies of Satan. Not only has he bought into the lies of Satan, but he's diminished sin. I mean, look further at what he says in verse uh, 12. It says, um, actually, continue in verse 11. Besides, she actually is my sister and the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother, the second thing we see is he's diminishing sin. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? Well, it's not really a lie. It's kind of a half lie. I mean, she's kind of my sister. It's kind of not. But it, so it's, it wasn't that bad. 
And then at the end of it, he basically says, this is what we've always done. When God caused us to wander, he put me in this position, and this is kind of what we've done. It's common practice. People do this all the time. It's not that big of a deal. Do you see what he's doing? He's diminishing. He's justifying. Isn't it amazing when we're called to account for our sin, suddenly we become the best attorneys the world has ever known? You ever see this with your children? All of a sudden, you call them to account for something they've done, and boy, that you think, that kid make the best lawyer ever making a pretty decent argument there we do the same things don't we we start diminishing our sin we start justifying our sin listen no man or woman has ever been great for jesus and had a low view of sin the people who have a low view of sin those are the people whose lives in a disaster I guarantee you, you show me a person who's tainted their life in some way, shape, or form in almost every occasion. If you go and ask them about they, what they've done, immediately you'll hear them justifying and diminishing the nature of their sin. Well, it wasn't that bad. Well, don't believe everything you've heard. It wasn't that bad. I did it, but I didn't do that much, and I wasn't this bad, and all everybody else does it. And they'll immediately start diminishing their sin. Listen, if we're going to be great and effective for God, if we're going to avoid the pitfalls of sin, we have to have a hatred towards sin. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but boy, we got to hate sin. And we got to have a sensitive heart to the, even the, the slightest nature of sin that might try to weasel its way into our life on the basis of a lie from Satan. We got to have a heart of Paul when he speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he says, Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness and fight the good fight of faith. The heart of a David who said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurt way in me lead me in the everlasting way what what do dirt mud pus dead insects and manure all have in common they're biblical analogies for sin you're getting ready to eat lunch aren't you glad i brought that up but the bible wants us to see the the nastiness of sin Listen, if we're going to have a heart that avoids the pitfalls of repetitive sins, listen to me, two, or two keys. Abide in the word of God so you hear his truth and rather than the lies of Satan. And ask God to give you a sensitive heart that hates sin. And every day you've got to get up knowing, I don't care how many times or how many days you've been walking with Jesus. I don't care how far you've come. I don't care how many PhDs you've got. I don't care if you're a pastor of an Baptist church. You better know every day you're dependent upon the grace of God. And you let your guard down and you don't go to battle. You're about to slip on a spiritual banana peel and fall flat on your face just like Abraham did. Now, I love what Billy Sunday said. I love this quote. Billy Sunday said, listen, he said, I'm against sin. He said, I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I got a fist. I'll bite it as long as I got a tooth. And he said, when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it to death. I love that heart that just says, listen, I know I'm going to struggle with this, but, but Satan... You better look out because when I get up in the morning, I'm going to bend my knee and I'm going to plead with God to help me fight you till I die, until you go to hell. But I'm going to fight sin because I know I'm going to struggle. This is an ongoing, listen, don't be deceived this morning. There is victory in Jesus, amen? There's victory in Jesus, but it doesn't happen on the basis of one battle. Do you know how it happens? 
inch by inch and day by day. Because the roots of sin run deep in our life. We all got junk we bring with us. And God has to dig deep and yank it out. Well, how does God respond? I think this is important to see too because, boy, do we need to see this. Number one, it kind of goes without saying, but God doesn't let him get away with it, does he? (laughs) I love this about God. God doesn't say, well, boys will be boys and patriarchs will be patriarchs. It's not that big of a deal. We'll just let it go. God, no, what does he do? He intervenes. He steps in here, and he is going to discipline Abraham. He's going to, and in fact, his discipline is a means of protection, right? Because if Abraham goes further with this deal and and Sarah ends up going into Abimelech, and then they have a son in chapter 21. What's somebody going to say? Well, it may not be Abraham's son. And now we've got an illegitimate child. And sometimes God's discipline in our life is a means of protection. Amen? Can we all not say today, thank you, God, for your loving discipline that's never easy but protects us from greater dangers that lie down the road. You ever done this with your kids where you say, I'd rather them cry a little bit today than cry a whole lot later on down the road. You ever think that as a parent? That what do you know? You know I'd rather them. It's a little issue right now, but if I don't nip it in the bud, like old Barney Five said, if I don't nip it in the bud right here and teach them this lesson today, then later on it's going to be something big and it's going to tank their life. And so I'm going to let them cry a little bit today, so hopefully they don't cry a lot later. And God is saying to Abraham, you're not going to like this, Abraham, but you messed up and we're going to call you out because I've got to get this right in your life. Otherwise, it's going to be a disaster later on. So God disciplines him. God confronts him. But the second thing that we see is that God still uses him. And this is the most astounding part of God's response to Abraham's sin. If I'd have been God, I'd say, you're on the bench, Abraham. That's it. I'm done. You should have. I, I can't believe you let this trip you up again. But that's not what God does, is it? God immediately does what? He says, Abraham, get up and pray for him. How embarrassing. You've just been called out. You goofed up. You're supposed to be the man of God. I bet, you know, you know what I think was going through Abraham's mind? God, I'm not worthy to pray for this man. Can I ask you today, can God use a man that lies? Well, he's going to do it right here. You know, I remember uh, Howard Hendricks tells a story of being in his class at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he, he was asked, he said, he, he, the, the, this student in his class asked him, how in the world could God use Judas? You know what Howard Hendricks said? I got a better question. How could God use you? And then he said, I got an even better question than that. How could God use me? Aren't you thankful today that God still uses sinners? That when we goof up, yes, he disciplines us, but he doesn't discipline us so he can set us on the bench. He disciplines us so he can build us back up into who he wants us to be. Don't we see this time and time again throughout Scripture with men like Jacob? You want to see a deceiver in Scripture. We're going to study him a little later in Genesis. But there's no greater deceiver ever walked the earth than Jacob. How in the world could God use a man like that? Well, God's going to break him, isn't he? And then God builds him back up. And is he going to walk forward in in life with a limp? Yeah, any of you got some limps in your life? 
And they end up making us more sensitive to God and to others. And God uses us even with our limp. You remember Peter? Biggest flop in Scripture. I'll never. I'm too good. All these other losers, they'll probably let you down, Jesus, but not me. And Jesus says, you're not going to let me down once. You're going to let me down three times. But you remember the end of that story? There on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter runs back to Jesus for the first time in his life. He doesn't have anything to say. And you remember what Jesus said? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Your sin doesn't disqualify you now. It has enabled me to use you. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Because you've goofed up. And you're wondering, can God still use me? And I'm here to tell you, by the grace of God, not only can God use you, he desires to use you, and he will use you if you'll rely upon him. See, this is the greatness of God. He is faithful even when we're faithless. How many of you can look back on your life and see that even when you weren't walking in faithfulness to God, he was faithful to you? What's going to happen in chapter 21? God's going to give him that sign. And you know what we're seeing? The bigger picture of what we're seeing in this? God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. But will that promise be fulfilled because Abraham is a bastion of righteousness and holiness? Not a chance. I think God does this right here in 21, or in 20, before 21, just so we would know. The only way this promise will ever be fulfilled is not because Abraham's so good, but because I'm so incredibly gracious. And that is the story of Scripture that we're seeing over and over again. We study these great men of faith, but what we realize, what we continue to realize, is there's only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. And it's the story of our lives. That we got a bunch of people in this room, and I guarantee if I went around and asked most of you, you would say, if I said, are you going to heaven? You'd raise that hand and say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Absolutely, I'm going to, I'm going to be with Jesus. And if I asked you, is it because you're such a great person? You would say, no. It's because God's been so incredibly gracious in the giving of his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins, and I've placed my faith in him. And my only hope of the promise being fulfilled is not my goodness, but Jesus who lived and died for me. That's the greatness of the God we serve. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. God, if there's anybody here today that know you, they never trust in Christ. I don't know where they've been. I don't know what they've done. Maybe they've been trying to attain salvation on the basis of their own goodness. God, I pray that you would show them the futility of that effort. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in comparison to your righteousness, oh, we're like filthy rags. But we praise you that you loved us. And you sent your son to live the life we couldn't. And to die the death we should have. So that through faith in him, we can have the promise of eternity with you forever in heaven. God, I pray if there's anybody here that's never trusted in you, you'd so overwhelm them with your love and your grace that they couldn't help but run to you. 
Father, for those of us that do know you, I don't know where everybody's at today. Holy Spirit, you're, you're, you're a lot better at application than myself. But there's a lot of people, I guarantee you, Lord, that are in here today that you know them. You know what they're going through, and they're struggling because they're dealing with some old sins that just won't let go. And God, I pray that you'd meet them right where they're at today. God, in your love and your grace, I pray that you'd take them by the hand and lead them back to that altar of grace and forgiveness and you'd restore them. You'd pick them up. And God, I pray that you'd whisper into their ear this morning, I love you. I'm proud of you. And I want to use you just as you are. God, I pray that they would sense your love this morning in a way that they never have. And they'd be encouraged to get up today and to serve you with a full heart and gracious hands and ready to tell the world about a God who forgives. God, we love you and we praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.